myself. I was the loser. So by doing all this, I could do a little bit of something. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston-Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today, our guest is Ms. Jeanette Valmont. Jeanette has been a 38-year volunteer for an organization called Hope & Cope, which is a psychosocial support organization for cancer patients and their families based at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. Despite suffering from debilitating chronic back pain from four failed back surgeries, thyroid cancer, and an inflammatory disease, Jeanette has made it her life's mission to support patients through the trajectory of their cancer diagnoses. Today, Jeanette is here with us to share how she reinvented herself after she became ill with her back and how she created her own pain management journey. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Jeanette. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? First of all, Nikita, I would like to thank you for inviting me to come by the Good Health Cafe. I'm really flattered. I'll introduce myself. My name is Jeanette Valmont. I am 78 years old. I am married and I have two very grown-up children. I was born in Bogota, Colombia, South America, and I came to Canada about 58 years ago. 38 years ago, I would have introduced myself as a full-time wife and full-time stay-at-home mom. 38 years later now, I would like to introduce myself as a full-time plus volunteer. What changed in those years? What changes the introduction? I have suffered four failed back surgeries. I have been diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica, which is an autoimmune disease, which causes an inflammation of the muscles, resulting in pain and stiffness. If not treated, it can cause a stroke or blindness. I had thyroid cancer and most recently a minor stroke. Of all of these medical issues, the one that left me the most handicapped and limited is really the back. Then and now, I am not able to walk more than, let's say, a half a block at a time. I am not able to sit for more than an hour at a time, and I have great difficulty standing for more than a couple of minutes. That was true then, and it is true now. In summary, I have lived the last 38 years in chronic illness. I lost my life as I knew it completely. Over all those years, I realized that if I wanted to live a little bit, I had to invent my own pain management strategy. I realized at some point that if I stayed up one hour and lay down for an hour hour, I could manage more or less the pain without resorting to a very tough narcotics. Now, when I say up one hour and lying down one hour, I mean exactly that. I have to lie flat. If I'm at home, I will lie on my bed or I'll lie on the floor. If I'm out, I still have to lie flat. If I'm at a doctor's or I'm at a meeting, 
I carry a mat and I lie on the floor. Now, no getting fussy. You don't look for five-star floors. You just look for a floor and you lie on it. I have to travel. If I go by car somewhere, I have to travel in the back seat of the car. I cannot sit up. I realized also that if I wanted to go anywhere, I would need I, I would need a wheelchair. At first, I was completely mortified. If I'm a volunteer or somebody who I knew at going to a doctor or so on, I was mortified. I had the impression they were all looking at me and saying, oh my God, look at what happened to poor Jeanette. I got over that and I have to declare that the wheelchair is my favorite, favorite BMW vehicle today. I just love it. The phone became a very important tool for me. I was stuck at home a lot and this was my lifeline. I developed a disc in my neck from talking on the phone and my very, very resourceful husband discovered what was then phenomenal and today is so common called a speakerphone. So I lie on my tummy and I use a speakerphone on my bed, uh, on my tummy, on the bed. And like that, I can speak for more hours without harming myself. I realized <clears throat> that if I wanted to watch TV again, because I was home a lot, need to sit up, I couldn't. Again, we resourced something called prism glasses. They reflect the, the TV to the ceiling and that way you can lie and watch a lot. So with this management strategy of one hour, one up, lying to go places, a wheelchair, prisms, a speakerphone, I was able to really have a little bit of a life. So my story is really all about how to live a rich, rewarding, fulfilling, and meaningful life with chronic illness. Thank you for sharing that. That's really fascinating. I love how you say you don't look for five-star floors. Any floor will do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Airport floors, bathroom floors. It doesn't matter. A floor. Yes. Ooh, airport. That's a good mention. Do you travel? I don't anymore. I traveled a little. In the last couple of years, I got worse. I'm not able to. I traveled a little in the earlier years. And because the waits are so long, they're too. I lay on the airport floor in the waiting room. Everybody stared. I, I felt uncomfortable, but Nikita, I had a choice. I either disregard all of these things and what people may think or the, the optic of it, or I stay home. If I don't adapt and accept all these things, the only person I was harming was myself. I was the loser. So by doing all this, I could do a little bit of something. Absolutely. I love that perspective because we many times, even folks with no ailments, spend a lot of their time concerned about what other people are thinking. And it's always to our own detriment. So Jeanette, you mentioned that you've been a volunteer for decades. What motivated you to become a volunteer and what keeps you going? Okay. So I had started volunteering before I started collecting chronic illnesses. I was volunteering with Hope and Cope, which is a psychosocial support organization based at the Jewish General. We are a support 
organization for cancer patients and their families. We support the patients during the cancer trajectory, both emotionally and with practical resources. Like, for example, in the case of a breast cancer, we have mastectomy bras, we have prostheses, we have wigs, we have head coverings. However, that volunteering required walking. And as I got so sick with my back and it was so bad, at that point, spent 18 months once in my bedroom confined, I couldn't walk. So I gave it up. Because I had had to give up so much, I completely lost my self-esteem. I couldn't do carpooling. I couldn't bake cookies. I was just in a very, very, very dark black place. But then I had two angels who appeared. Both angels were Hope and Cope angels. One angel was the coordinator of Hope and Cope at the time, and the other one was a dear friend. They came to me and made a proposal and said, you know, Jeanette, you can still work if we modify the way we work. I gave it a lot of thought. She said to me, you are becoming a full-time patient and you don't have to be. Try to remember that you're the same Jeanette you were before this, but with a very bad back. We were, of course, a much smaller organization then than we are, than we are now. I gave it a lot, a lot, a lot of thought. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try this. In all of these, between my first back, very bad back attack and all the surgeries and all the different things and the failures, years had gone by. And I realized that I was learning a lot and gaining a certain perspective that allowed me to give myself the title of an honorary physical suffering PhD. So I went around saying I have a PhD in personal suffering. I actually make a list that I'd like to read of the mm -hmm. skills that I thought I had learned throughout all of this and that I could use. I'll read them because it's easier to understand. I realized mm -hmm. that I understand broken dreams and disappointments. I started to realize that I understood the awful fear and anxiety of always waiting for some medical result. I realized I learned about treatments and their side effects. I know what it takes to project a brave front. I know the feeling of constant dependency. And I know the fear of becoming a burden to your loved ones. I realized that with this PhD that I had given myself, I could go back to work and I had that broader understanding of what people feel, what patients feel. I feel it in my gut when a patient says to me, I'm so afraid, the doctor hasn't called, I've been waiting an extra, I, I just feel it in my gut. So with my PhD skills, I went back to work and it has become a mission for me. That's what I do most of my life. I, I, I feel people suffering in my gut. I, there's nothing like having walked the walk or feeling the feeling. And it became a mission. And that's that's what I do. I will never refuse to help a patient. It's, it's just what I want to do. Because sometimes we don't understand unless we go through it. So that's what's kept me going and will always keep me going. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure 
many people can relate or at least enjoy working with you because you have that experience and you're not just saying kind words, but you actually know for yourself what you're sharing. I swear, I feel it in my gut. I've had several, you said what keep me going. I've had several roles at Hope and Cope. I work to support patients and their caregivers, as I said, mostly on the phone. Occasionally, we'll meet them or go to a meeting or something like that. 20 years pre-COVID, for 20 years pre-COVID, I managed the scheduling of the volunteers in the outpatients in oncology. So that there, there were about 65 volunteers managed that. I helped train new volunteers. I I take references for new volunteers. Hey, I even made it to co-president of Hope and Co. But I I really owe this rich, meaningful career to Sheila Kuzner, who is the founder of Hope and Co., who was an amputee at a very, very young age, 12 or 13, and to the staff of Hope and Co., who throughout all of these years pushed me, helped me. It didn't matter how it looked, where I lay, and they really supported me. One example of, I I call my way of working quirky. Uh, One example of beautiful quirky is, many years ago, a doctor had to give a Latin patient some very, very bad news. She didn't speak English and she didn't speak French. I speak Spanish. So they called on me and asked me if I would translate. I said, with pleasure. I went into the little room, met the patient, sat across from her at the table. But as the time went by, and as usual, doctors were late. I realized, oh my God, he's not coming. What am I going to do? Started to feel that I was going to fall apart with pain. And I asked her if she would mind if I lay on the examining table. So try to imagine the quirky, beautiful of the scene when the doctor walks in and the patient who is terminal is sitting and the interpreter volunteer is lying on the examining table. (laughs) So it's been beautiful and meaningful. But if Hope and Coke wouldn't have allowed that, I couldn't have done it. Yeah, that, that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. Could you please share an example of having to advocate for yourself in the health system and what the outcome was? Okay, so when I was first sick and young and inexperienced, I didn't realize that most any diagnostic tool can have a small margin of error. To me, a test was, God, it was perfect. The very, very, very first test that I had that was a little bit risky turned out to show absolutely nothing. It said, my back is fine. Here I am, they they can't see a problem. Here I am suffering so much and saying, "I I have something, I know I have something. I really had to advocate for many years, I think for more than two, three years, to please keep repeating tests. I had something that was complicated and wasn't showing. And I had to push and say, there is something wrong with me. And at that point, what happens is doctors and people around you start to wonder, start to question your credibility. 
you also get titled stress, nerves, particularly if you're a woman. You have to continue trying. And boy, boy, did I fight. What was the outcome? The outcome, as I told you, it wasn't a result of good surgeries. But I have to tell you that the day that I had my, I don't know how many tests, my how many consult that showed that I had two ruptured discs and something was pressuring the sciatica as well, might seem funny, but that was the happiest day of my life because it validated me. All of a sudden, I wasn't crazy. I wasn't hysterical. I wasn't stressed. I had a real, real problem. It was so validating. I had tried everything. I even had one professional come to my husband one day and say, Mr. Valmont, you know, I've never seen a case like your wife's. There's something blocking. I have the impression that she doesn't want to get better. Now, I can't tell you what that does to a relationship or what that does to your, just the whole credibility. So that's a very good example of having to advocate and push. Don't be afraid to say, I don't feel well. I'm sorry. There has to be something wrong. Can we still look? Can we look somewhere else? Please. Most patients know their bodies, unless you're dealing with somebody who's really not well mentally, but otherwise people know what's wrong or that there is something wrong. So it's hard to be so sick and have to fight for credibility, but you do, you have to fight. That makes perfect sense. I'm thinking, yes, yes, I'm not crazy. You found something. I knew there was something there. Oh, I was so excited. I mean, most people would be devastated with two ruptured discs. I was so excited. It had a name. I wasn't nuts. I wasn't crazy. And that wasn't the only time when I was diagnosed with polymyalgia, the same thing. They confused it with a back. When you have many things, in all due respect, we have wonderful equipment, but sometimes things are difficult to find and, and diagnose and confusing. And it takes time and it's just very scary to think that they don't believe you. It's hard to say that a bad diagnosis can make you so happy. When the doctor told your husband that he thinks that, you know, I think your wife doesn't want to get better. How did your husband respond? He wasn't really a doctor. He was one of the more like practitioners, therapists, etc. I don't mean a, a psychotherapist, but the different um, physiotherapists and all of the different uh, meditation and mindfulness thing, different techniques that they use. Um, he, he took it badly because he said that that's impossible. That's not her. It's impossible. Why would she not want to get better? She so badly wants to live. Why would she not want to get better? But it was a terrible, terrible thing to say. Another partner could have really taken it exactly that way and said, you know what? Snap out of it. Like, really, it's enough already. No, he took it very well and he defended me. But there were moments during the journey of the different tests that came out negative when there was problems with the back where even he started to doubt a little bit. Could it be stress, nerves? How come nothing shows? So he had moments. There were moments of doubt as well. Wow. That's fantastic. I love I love everything I hear about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Did it make you nervous to speak up, Jeanette, when you were pushing? 
Yeah, I think so. It made me nervous, but at some point, I, I, I was starting to get a little bit angry. You don't believe me. I'm not stressed. I'm not nervous. I, I'm just not well. So, yeah, a little nervous, but I would really encourage everybody not to be scared. Please, please, please push, particularly if patients know that in a very small percentage of equipment, there can be a little error. Why not push? I once had a blood test that came out of whack and I was very scared. And it was only a question of the decimal point having put by mistake in the wrong place. I begged the doctor to repeat it and I was right. So yeah, a little nervous, but I've learned that you you have to fight it. You have to be stronger than that. Jeanette, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to receive your various diagnoses? So thyroid cancer was really incidental. I went for a, um, actually, when I was diagnosed with polymyalgia, there was a lot of misunderstanding because polymyalgia is, the way you see it is with a test, a blood test that shows inflammation. But because I, if you see inflammation and I have a bad back, a little bit of inflammation is not that unusual. So they really didn't believe me at the beginning. And exactly as I said before, I had to fight. They said, you know, your blood test shows inflammation. That's from the back. That's really not important. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. I wanted to repeat it, but somebody close to me said, you know, you just had a blood test two weeks ago. Don't do it now. You're you're getting really very nervous, very hysterical. And stupid me didn't listen. And I didn't repeat it. And I waited to the point where I could not get out of bed because the pain in my arms was so severe, I couldn't lift myself out of bed. By then, the blood value was so scary that the doctor was afraid, really, because you can either have a stroke or go blind. So here's a typical example of when you have too many things, it can get confusing for the best minds to confuse an inflammation which is appropriate for the back, which one which is a new thing happening. There again, if it had been diagnosed early, like everything, I would have done much better. I'm taking steroids, which have terrible side effects, 21 years later, because I let it go too long. If I had pushed and repeated that blood test, that would not have happened. And the thyroid cancer luckily was happened, happened incidentally, as the doctor who was um, examining for the polymyalgia. Did you know you had a lump on your neck? I, no, I don't. He said, but you do. So he sent me right away to the uh, to the specialist. That was discovered early. And that was my luckiest outcome so far. I hope, fingers crossed, because it was discovered early. Again, that's so important to know anything that is discovered early has a hopefully a better outcome. So when you see anything that is unusual, report it. Don't ignore it because that one saved me because it was fast. So that's how those were discovered. I had a minor stroke recently and I actually walked around with it for a week because, oh. the, because I had the symptoms that I had was just 
a terrible change in my voice, terrible fatigue, and it lasted about 24 hours. I asked as an advocate that night, I didn't feel well, but, but I was more or less okay. Knowing a little bit, because I work in the hospital, I asked my doctor if I could have an MRI of the brain and a cardiogram. He said, Jeanette, you're, you're fine. This morning you were tired, your voice was funny, but you're fine. I walked around with it with this requisition for a week. When I was ready to go, I almost didn't go. I said to my husband, but I'm fine. I went and as I was coming out of the tunnel of the MRI, the doctor said to me, we've been in touch with a Jewish and you've had a stroke. We want you to go immediately to the hospital. But I walked around with a stroke for one week. How I came out of that unscathed, I don't know. Again, the symptoms were misleading. They were bad for 24 hours, then it calmed down. And it was I who asked, you know, based on what I felt yesterday, could I please have more testing? It was a little scary. I'm not used to it. And they agreed and that did it. Again, if you feel something that is completely out of the ordinary, report it. You're usually not crazy. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. That's really, I'm speechless. <laughs> that, that's, that's quite a story. Wow. It's very fortunate that you knew to ask that you were so conscious of your own body yeah. and what normal yeah. feels like for you that, that you were able to follow up on that. I don't know how I came out of that unscathed, but it's one more thing to add. And, you know, you, you, you live in some kind of fear. When I speak to patients uh, at Hope & Co, patients who have a very, very good prognosis, I, I'll tell them always, your prognosis is fabulous, but there's one thing that you probably will lose along this journey, and it's called your peace of mind. Because Nothing is ever the same again. I remember being younger when I went for a blood test. The only thing that I cared about is, oh, my God, I hope this isn't going to take too long. Now it's, oh, my God, I hope that it doesn't show anything bad. So you you live with that. You, you lose your peace of mind when you acquire all of these different things. That is so true. You do lose your peace of mind. Is there anything that you know today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your journey? Several points. I wish I had been much more educated about back surgery, about my illnesses, about the risks of surgery, about treatments, about the side effects of treatments. I knew very little about back surgery. I was very excited. They found it. Wow, they're going to fix it and I'm going to be fine. Somewhere around my second failed back surgery, I was sitting in an office of a doctor waiting for a consult and I saw a flyer and I see the term failed back surgery. Oh, I said, what is that? It never, ever had occurred to me or had I ever seen that word. I didn't think there was such a thing. Back surgeries don't fail. They fix you. I never had heard of polymyalgia. So I would really encourage patients to educate themselves, if at all possible, to find somebody who's had a similar type of illness or know somebody who who has. The best teacher is somebody who has been through it. Honestly, I wish I hadn't been so young and naive and I had known a little bit more about 
<clears throat> what I was getting in myself into. I really didn't know. Educate yourself. Ask questions. Read. Today you can read. You can ask. So really, I, I regret that. That's really helpful. Can you think of maybe other ways? How for someone who might oh, hear absolutely. that and think, <laughs> how do I? Yeah, no, no. Where do I even start to find someone to help? <laughs> yeah. Today there are a lot, a lot of very good support groups. Very many different organizations for different things. I would really start there. I would phone, and we've done it at Hope and Copen. It works really well. I would phone an association for for back. I would try to see if they had somebody that I could speak to, somebody who had been through. Just educate myself through that. There's a lot of, I, I would say, support groups and groups are really the best way to reach out. Also, sometimes it's very good to ask your doctor. I've done that. Is there, and it, it helped me, is there, do you do you have a, another patient who has a similar diagnosis to mine or who has been, as a matter of fact, I did that. I asked a doctor, but it was after my second surgery failed. They did find somebody. It wasn't very encouraging because the person had had failed surgeries as well. And all she could do was tell me that, yes, surgery does fail. So be careful. Try to find a support group, but vet it out and try to speak to somebody who's been through your type of situation, if possible, with a good outcome. And there's also a lot that you can read. And people who are good on the internet know which are the credible sources, like Mayo Clinic, the National Institute of Health, there are better things. And don't try to read everything at once and try to get all this knowledge at once. Read it little by little, but definitely know what you're getting as well as side effects of treatments for sure. I love that. Thank you. Are there any myths or misconceptions that you would like to dispel when it comes to living with a chronic illness? Myth number one, people do not understand that chronic is everyday all of the time. Myth number two is that chronic can have better days and flare-ups, which of course we constantly try to deny, but chronic can have what a very good friend of mine calls pockets of limited energy, which makes it very difficult for others to understand. I'll give you an example. My friend who has a similar situation, has a chronic illness, had refused a dinner invite. But that afternoon, he had exactly what he calls a pocket of limited energy, which was one hour, and he decided to go to the gym. He was so pleased he could do that. Somebody saw him in the gym and reported to his friend, oh, he can't come for dinner, but he's at the gym. Very hard for people to understand that chronic can have one hour, but that doesn't mean that that the chronic is gone. That means that that day he had a little hour that he could use for something that he wanted to do. So it makes it very hard for people to, to understand. Another thing, which is not a myth, but something that happens with chronic is a term that maybe is official, but I coined it for myself called compassion fatigue. You have people around you to list, who listen to you a lot. But what happens with chronic is because you don't get 
phenomenally better, people can get tired and they get what they call compassion fatigue. They can get a little tired of hearing because it's the same thing over and over. That's why it's chronic. So what I've adopted is I, I try not to repeat. When people ask me, how are you? I'm the same. I try not to repeat the whole litany again, again, because I do feel that uh, compassion fatigue is an official term. And the biggest myth is that someone living with chronic illness can still be very productive and contribute to society and lead a very meaningful and rewarding life. That is true. You are a living example of that. You live a very rewarding life. Oh, without a doubt, Jeanette, (laughs) without a doubt. As someone who has had a lot of interaction with the health system, what are some of the things that you've learned that you think everyone should know? I would say just learn. Uh, I'm trying to really think. I think everybody should know what I said at the beginning. There could be a tiny margin of error with a diagnostic and you have to look into it and see. It's not 100% foolproof. Bush tried to insist that you that they'd help you look for the right answer. A second opinion is very hard to ask for, a third one even worse. But I would certainly say, if you're uncomfortable, try to get a second opinion. If you're uncomfortable with your doctor, try to see what you can do about it. It's your right. You're the patient. Try to help yourself. Advocate for yourself. And I learned that you can do it. Don't stop. Do it. Don't stop. Do it. Do it. What advice would you give to someone who's newly diagnosed with an illness? Like I said before, educate yourself. Really ask a lot of questions about your illness, your treatment, the side effects, what to expect, read about it. As I said before, most importantly, try to find somebody who has a similar illness Look for support groups, as I said before. Make sure they are credible ones. Don't be afraid to ask a lot. But most important of all, be careful not to fall into the trap of magical solutions. Any of what I call the voodoo treatments. Anything that sounds too good is probably too good. So be careful. But educate yourself. You can never ask enough questions, and you can never educate yourself enough. Yeah, I had it in me because I really wanted to to live. But I have to say that your support network is very, very important. I had a husband who sort of made a deal with me. He said, if you don't let yourself sink into, like you say, a trap of I'm no good or anything, I will do anything to help you physically, which means taking me in a wheelchair. It's now 38 years, putting it in the car, taking it out of the car, taking me everywhere I want to go. He said to the children, I don't want you to ever feel that mommy can't come because she's in a wheelchair. As long as she can participate, whether it's in your graduation or anything that is important, we want her there in any way. So this this support, this push, you do it and we'll all do our part allowed me not to sink, but I did at one point was in a very black. I was so blessed. I was blessed by Hope and Cope. I was blessed 
by my support family, and they just didn't let me. But I also pushed a lot because I realized that the more I was thinking, I was the loser. If I could just push myself to do a little, I could get a little out of life. And why not? I could only be the loser if I didn't. And I pushed. And trust me, there are many days, even now, when I say, oh, but I get up and do it. And I, I, and I push because the reward is immense. I, I have a, maybe a half a life or not even, but it's a very, very wonderful, rich one. Your husband sounds amazing. He sounds like a really fantastic guy. Amazing. Amazing and very, very supportive. He really wanted me to do the best I could and live the way I could. And he he would help. His fear was more that, like you said, that I would sink into a kind of a depression because really everything failed and I couldn't live the life that I had lived at all. And he just pushed to find resources to do it in a different way. My children, the same. And that support, if you're blessed with very, very powerful, good support, it's so wonderful and it's so, so much easier. It, it's the support around you is, is everything, Nikita, really. Absolutely. This question goes a little bit, I think the gym example you gave touches on it a bit. But because your illness is invisible, I think that could probably cause some people to be unintentionally dismissive. And how do you handle that? A thousand percent. Dismissive is one of the biggest issues. I would say dismissive is too kind of a word. I don't look sick unless some days I'm in terrible pain. I don't have wounds. I'm not missing a limb doesn't show. It is invisible, like you said. The word that I would use rather than dismissive, which happened to me most, is judgment or criticism. For example, because it doesn't show, a friend, I was sitting at a restaurant with a friend and my hour was coming to an end and I was starting to look at the watch and getting a little nervous. They they know my story so well. He said to me, what would happen if you didn't look at your watch. So I said, oh, he doesn't get it. What would happen? The pain tomorrow would be so horrendous that it would be called payday. Another example is if I have to ask for extra help, maybe let's say at a hair salon or at a doctor's appointment, if I ask them to please respect the hour that I can do, I can come across as demanding, spoiled, But I'm not, I don't look it, but if you make me stay here a little longer, I'm just going to faint. There are times when I could just literally faint in pain if I overdo, but I don't look it. Another example that is kind of cute is we have a handicap sticker in the car. My son drove me to an appointment and drove in the handicap section, tried to get me as close as I could. I got out of the car And before I knew it, there was a policeman questioning where was the handicapped person. It was me, but I didn't look the part. I had a little bit of difficulty, but I have documents to prove it. But I obviously don't look it. It's very hard. How do I respond to that? I tell people, I know you don't see it. I know you don't believe me, but thankfully I don't look it, but trust me. I I can't walk. I can't do better. 
if they put me to the test really badly, <clears throat> then I can answer, you know what? I don't look it, but you wouldn't want to be in my shoes. That's mm -hmm. when I'm really tested to the limit. Bottom line, you have to accept some judgment, some criticism. Just accept it. A lot of people don't get it, and a lot of people do. You just, it, it, it's invisible. But dismissive is, is kinder than judgmental and critical. Thank you for those examples. They were all fantastic. The friend who told you what happens if you don't look at your watch? Is that person still your friend today? No. No. <laughs> no, but for a very, very long time, they were. But today, no. But at the time, I didn't want to remain alone. And I made a big effort to conserve friends. And uh, they were trying. You see, in, in, in order to be able to go out a little bit, let's say if I wanted to go for a meal to a restaurant, the only way that I can do that is phone a restaurant that knows me and I order my meal ahead so that I can eat it in the hour so that when I get to the restaurant, the meal is on the table and it's ready. These friends were accommodating me and joining us for an hour. And I always felt, look, they're making an effort to do this. They're swallowing their food in an hour in order to be with us and accompany us. So very often I swallowed a lot of stuff that I didn't have to because I felt that they were making an effort for me. But I also answered back. I wasn't quiet. No, these have not been after a few years, my friend. Yeah, that's good to know. But with invisible illnesses, Nikita, you always run the risk of criticism or of people saying you're not trying your best, you're not making an effort, you could do better. Um, it, it just doesn't show. Thank God it in a way that it doesn't, but it makes it much less credible. Much. That's kind of reason why I'm so honored that you've taken the time to share your story with me and the listeners, because hopefully this will build awareness among some of them that if they don't already know someone with an invisible illness, maybe they will in the future and they'll respond better. That's my Absolutely. Hope. I hope so. I really, really hope so because it's, it's hurtful and it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. You, you, you look, I don't, I don't look at and very, very often people don't believe me. Very often, very often people don't believe me. And like I told you about a pocket of energy, if by any chance I have a better moment and I am able to do a little something and anybody sees me, then they, they question it. You're always very careful. I better not go here because I said I couldn't go for dinner. What if they see me? So you're always treading a bit of a fine line of criticism and of judgment when you have an invisible illness. It, it, it makes it harder, but I hope people will learn that to trust when somebody tells you, I have it. Why would they invent it? Why would one want to be sick and invent right. an illness? Very good question. And I've just really been enjoying hearing your perspective and outlook on life throughout this whole interview. Finally, Jeanette, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to share? I would like to use my extra minutes to 
talk a little bit about Hope and Cope. We are a resource for cancer patients. I would like if you could give our phone number, which is 514-340-8255, or we can go to hopeandcope.ca. If there's anybody who has been diagnosed, knows of somebody whose diagnosis, caregiver, etc., please reach out to us. We are there to help. We also have a beautiful wellness center. Unfortunately, now we are mostly closed, but a lot of our activities have gone on Zoom. And people, most of the activities, people can benefit from that. We've started to open up a little to some, but it's hard with COVID. But it's a wonderful resource. Other than that, I just want to say, be courageous, fight, don't stop. If you don't feel well, just push and and do your best and don't give up. Thank you, Jeanette. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, knowledge, and experience with me at the Good Health Cafe here today. And thank you, Nikita, for having me. Really, it was a pleasure and I'm honored. It was an honor for me too. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Jeanette is such a sweet, kind, caring person. It's always a delight to speak with her. If you have heard something useful on today's episode, please share it with a friend. If you believe that Hope and Cope can be helpful to you and you're in the Montreal area, the phone number and all the information are in the show notes below. Thank you again to Jeanette for sharing her story with us and all the tips and tricks that she has learned. If you want to keep up to date with the Good Health Cafe podcast and learn when new episodes come out, I encourage you to sign up for our mailing list. The link is in the show notes. That way you'll always know when our new episodes are posted. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.